0: A couple of weeks ago, our kids were gone down to my parents' house for a few days. And while they were gone, Abby and I painted several rooms in our house. We figured we'd do that. While they were gone, you know, it would be easier. Although there was a point early on in the quarantine where Abby was going a little stir crazy and thought it would be a good idea to paint with them there. Thankfully, that passed. And so we did it this past uh, or a couple weeks ago. Um, Now, what we would do is we'd kind of use it as sort of a vacation because we'd paint during the day, but at night we would just watch movies and eat junk food. And we watch a ton of movies. Um, we've always been into the action into the world type movie even if they were even if they're cheesy. you know we we're still going to probably enjoy it. And one of the movies we watched was Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. Now, if you haven't seen it, I'm gonna spoil a little bit of it. But the part I'm spoiling is in the trailer, so I don't I don't feel that bad about it. Um, basically, the famous island with all the dinosaurs on it has had this long dormant volcano that suddenly became active, and it's blowing its top, and it's gonna destroy the whole island and all the dinosaurs, right? And um, as these movies do, the main characters find themselves, you know, on the island, outrunning the erupting volcano and things like that. And it had all the stuff you'd expect to see in a movie like that, where people are walking around where a volcano is exploding. Um, Lots of close calls, um, lots of lava rolling up on people and then barely getting away. Uh, Lots of, you know, the ground would crack and, like, move and raise up and it would block the only obvious exit, you know, that they could have to get out of this horrible danger. Um, Lots of running down hills while... Fiery rocks rain down from the sky. Had all that stuff, but the one like movie trope that I expected to see, but I didn't, um, was the thing where um, the ground starts to crack, but it's, it cracks right between someone's feet. You know, right between where their feet are, and then as the ground starts to shake and the tectonic activity is going wild, the crack starts to split, moving their feet farther and farther apart, and you know before too long. Their their feet are really far apart and they've got to make a decision. Do I go this way or this way? And they look down and if it's a volcano movie that this kind of thing's happening and you'll see the, the glowing lava kind of rising up through the crack slowly. Or if it's like just an earthquake movie or something else, you'll look down and the crack is just this endless abyss that they're going to fall into uh, to their death or to the center of the earth or whatever. Um, but the 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 tenseness of like the spreading ground and the feet on both sides like i love that um, and i've seen varieties of that kind of thing in, in lots of end of the world or just action movies over the years even the third indiana jones movie ends with like a crack i don't think it's between their feet but it's still it's a crack and they're hanging over the edge and all that stuff right and even though that kind of stuff can be exciting it's a little bit played out we see it in a lot of movies it's not really realistic I mean, what are the chances that even if you were around um, like this, this epicenter of an earthquake or around a volcano that was erupting, what are the chances that the ground is going to crack perfectly beneath your feet or anything like that? And so it's not a situation that I don't think anyone would ever ever end up in. But it is common for us in some ways to find ourselves uh, where we're kind of standing on, on two different places at the same time, where we're trying to live in kind of two different worlds, uh, where we will change the rules so that we don't have to pick one side of an issue or the other. Uh, one obvious one that came to my mind was I've known people that said, I'm a vegetarian, but I eat seafood, and I always remember being like, that's not vegetarian. Like Vegetarians don't eat things with eyes unless they're potatoes, so I don't know like how that fits into their brain, but they're just changing the rules so that they can kind of say, oh, I've got a foot over here where I like meat, and but I want to be a vegetarian. So they kind of change the rules a little bit. Now you might say, well, okay, I'm not a vegetarian. And that's true. Most of the people watching this morning are not vegetarians. But um, one place where we do try to do this, one place that's very, very common for people to try to do this is with our spiritual lives. You see, we learn in scripture that sin leaves us spiritually dead, that That's why Jesus came. That's why he surrendered himself to die on the cross. It was to pay the price for our sins, to to take the punishment that that you and I deserved. And and the, the end result is when we put our faith in Jesus, we receive from him a new life, a resurrected spiritual life through him. That when we become Christians, Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to live inside of us and he makes us alive again, whereas sin had left us dead. And this new life is meant to be lived not at all like the old life. Okay, The old life is one where we gave in to sin, where we lived often self, selfish lives. But this new life is meant to be one where we put off all of that and we live with new goals to glorify God and to truly love and sacrifice for other people and serve other people. And, and when we become Christians, we're kind of meant to make a clean break out with the old, in with the new, let go of the old, we move on, and we live in this new, different life like Jesus. One of the best passages that shows that we're supposed to kind of leave the old and take on this new is Ephesians chapter 4, uh, starting in verse 22. It says this, it says, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Put off the old, put on the new. And the, the language here, it's, it's um, terminology that we used of um, changing clothes. Like put off those gross, old, nasty clothes and put on something brand new. And, and so for Christians... The choice to give your life to Jesus is, in many ways, a a decision to leave your old life, leave your old way of living behind, and begin living a new way that you're going to learn from Jesus as you go. Uh, But what so many of us try to do is, rather than totally leaving behind the old and jumping into the new, is we try to live with a foot in both lives, we try to have the benefits of both. We try to hang on to our, uh, or, or try to get this new life and the benefits of it, which namely, mostly what we're concerned with is salvation. We want to make sure that we got our eternity locked up, that we're going to go to heaven when we die. But we want to hang on to the benefits of the old life, namely the control, the ability to just do what we think is fun and, and to, to do what we want to do. Now, what we're going to do today is we're going to get into James chapter 4, and if you've been tracking with this series for a while, you know we're going through verse by verse of the book of James. And the book of James, if you don't know, is actually a letter written by the half-brother of Jesus to, to Jewish Christians who had been scattered all over the Roman Empire. This was written 2,000-ish years ago, and... And as we get into what we're, uh, what James is saying today, we're going to see is he's talking about this very same phenomenon. He's going to talk about how ridiculous it is to try to live with your feet in both of these worlds. The, the ridiculous of trying to live in two worlds at the same time, the foolishness of trying to be kind of Christian or sort of following Jesus. And he's going to say that it, it just doesn't make sense at all. So let's go ahead. James chapter four, we'll start in verse one. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And James is kind of starting out talking um, about a leftover of our old lives, these pre-Christ lives. Now, before Jesus, the main guiding force for most people is just, what do I want to do? That's the question. What's going to be fun? What's going to bring me pleasure? What do I really want to do? Uh, that's that's what, what was true of the culture 2,000 years ago. Roman culture was very much that way. Um, and it's kind of the underlying message of, of our culture today. Um, you hear any really... Advice um, or life coach instruction in our culture, and it's going to be something about you living for you. You do what makes you happy, you follow your heart, Uh, you live your truth, regardless of what other people think. It's all about you doing what you want to do. And James, what he's pointing out here is this obvious truth that if everybody lived, if everybody based their decisions only on what do I want to do, eventually inevitably what I want to do and what you want to do are going to clash because what if I want to steal your wife what if I want to shoot your dog because I'm tired of hearing the barking what if I don't want to work anymore so I'm just going to rob your house when you're gone and steal all your money and your stuff what if that's what I want to do now, those are extreme examples, I understand that, but it still illustrates the idea that eventually, if we're just going to live by what we want to do, our wants are going to cause problems, okay? There are going to be times when, when what I want and what you want clash and conflict, and it is such a common trap, though, for us to get into this, this desire to just do what we want to do. It is so common, even if you call yourself a Christian, this is something that you slide into sometimes, I would almost guarantee it, because it's something I slide into all the time. Uh, Most of the things that upset me, most of the things that that irritate me, frustrate me, are times when I just can't get my way. Times when I just can't do something that I think is going to be more pleasurable than the alternative. And, you know, I've said this a lot of times, but most of the time I get upset with my kids and frustrated Uh, You know, if you ever get in a bad mood, I get in bad mood sometimes. Most of the time, that happens. It's not because anybody's mistreating me or being wrong or bad or immoral. It's most of the time it's because I just can't put my situation into a state where I get what I want. It's as simple as that. And if you want to like figure out is this you? Do you ever have this tendency to just want to do what you want to do? Pay attention. To those times you get angry pay attention to the times you get frustrated if it happens a lot i would pretty much guess that most of the time it's not because you're being mistreated it's because you're just people are getting in the way of you having what you want and so if we're just going to go by our desires if we're just going to live by by what we want that's going to cause drama that's going to cause conflict and james says that's a leftover of the old life That's not what life is supposed to be like with Christ. But yet, again, sometimes we try to live with a foot in both worlds. We want to follow Jesus. Yeah, sure, I want to go to heaven and all that. But I really want what I want. He keeps going, though. Verse 2. The rest of verse 2. He says, you do not have because you do not ask. Meaning, ask God. You don't pray for things. And you ask and do not receive, because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So when you're trying to live in both worlds, um, usually you're not super committed to living a godly life. Um, What happens is when you're trying to, you know, have a little bit of Jesus and have your life your way too, what what tends to happen is most of the time you just check in every now and then with Jesus just to make sure you're cool and you can kind of feel okay about your eternal situation. But you really are spending most of your time focusing on having your life to be pleasurable and, and you know modified the way you want it to be. Um, and he's saying, in that situation, chances are you're not going to have a super strong prayer life. And then when you do pray on, on the off chance, you're going to look at God like he's a genie or a cosmic vending machine that exists just to give you what you want. I mean, I remember some of the, the prayers that I prayed early on in my faith. Um, and I, I've said this before, but I, I remember pl- praying so many times when I would pull into my uh, home church parking lot on Sunday mornings. This was in college because I had a job. Um, and I would sit in my car and I would write my offering check. And I would just kind of pray, God, see how faithful I'm being? See how good, good, good I am, God, following all the rules and giving my offering check? You know, if you let me win the lottery or somehow let millions and millions of dollars just kind of fall into my lap, I will tie that to the church. Now, I prayed that so many Sundays, just hoping that God would let me strike it rich. Um, And it might surprise you, but that wasn't a selfless prayer. That wasn't a prayer born out of a generous heart. That was not a prayer that was concerned with giving to the church and blessing the church. That was just me wanting 90% 90% of whatever millions of dollars God wanted to bestow upon me, right? But that's the kind of idea here. It's like, I didn't pray a genuine prayer. I was praying because I wanted something for me. And again, that, that prayer was rarely, uh, those kinds of prayers rarely get answered. And the thing is, when you pray, God doesn't want you to just to pray like that. He doesn't want you to pray selfishly only for you. God, give me this. God, give me this. God, give me this. Th- that's not the kind of relationship he wants with you. But but that's the kind of relationship that we cultivate when we try to live with a foot in each world. We're mainly concerned about us because we hang on to that old life because we want to do what we want to do. He goes on and, and he and notices a huge turn in the language that he uses here from the rest of the book of James. He gets really harsh here, and he's going to get really harsh uh, again in in just a few minutes. But he says um, in James 4, he says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose?" It is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. Now, again, notice the language here um, because it's not an accident. Uh, James calls this in between, foot in both worlds kind of Christian mentality and lifestyle. He calls it adulterous. And he, and, And adultery, if you don't know what that means, it means you're trying to be in more than one relationship at a time. You're cheating on God. Um, And I do think this is what the early days of my faith looked like. I mean, as evidenced by the kind of prayers I used to pray. Um, But I think this is the the kind of faith that, or this is a, a phenomenon that's really common with a lot of people early on in their faith. I, for one, did not understand what it meant to make a clean break from my old life to live a new life for Christ. I just didn't fully understand that when I became a Christian. Um, people kind of tried to explain it to me, but I just didn't get it. And I think that's common for a lot of people who are, who are young in their faith. And, and, and yet he says, that's a big deal. You can't be a friend of God and a friend of the world. Um, he says this relationship or friendship with the world, it actually makes you an enemy of God. That Standing on both places, that's not neutral, but it actually makes you an enemy of God. Um, and, and he uses the term friendship with the world. That means that you just kind of adopt all of the culture's values and the cultural mindsets that exist in the world you live in and in the time you live in, rather than letting God show you and reveal to you what is right, what is wrong, what you should be doing, what you should not be doing, letting God lead your life. You just kind of let culture inform you on what what you should do and, and how to live. And God says when or, and James says when you choose to let your culture be the driving force and the and the driving influence of your life, that makes you an enemy of God. That yes, you kind of think, well, I'm I'm standing in both worlds, so I'm going to have the best of both. I'm kind of in neutral ground here. James says, no, that's not neutral ground. You've made your choice. Trying to hang on to any part of that old life makes you an enemy of God. There is no neutral stance here. You either go all in and love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, or you have chosen to be an enemy, to stand as an enemy of God. Neutrality is impossible. You cannot stand with a foot in both worlds. And what I had to learn early on in my faith, and I'm still trying to practice this, is that there is no half-in with Jesus. There's no kind of a Christian. There's no such thing as almost all-in or kind of in, half-in, however you want to say it. That doesn't exist. Our Heavenly Father requires all of us full devotion. Now, there's a, a, a PBS show, that um, it's a kid's show, called Odd Squad. And um, Jude was really into it a few years ago, and so we watched a ton of it, as you do. And we watched some episodes over and over and over again. And uh, one of my favorite parts of the show was that they had this parody of a boy band. Um, And they they popped up several times. It was kind of this recurring joke throughout the whole series, um, was this boy band. And they had a love song called Probably. A love song called Probably. Um, And the lyrics were, I'll probably love you forever. I'll most likely be there by your side. Um, nobody knows what love has in store, but if it's 90%, let's just call it for sure. Uh, I I, don't, I thought that was hilarious um, because it was such a non-committal love song. Like, yeah, I'm probably I'm probably into the I'm yeah, I'm probably gonna stay with you all forever, most likely. And you know, it's like nobody's like gonna be swooning if somebody sings those lyrics to them. Why? Because in our relationships, we want full devotion. Like when we get married to somebody, we want them, we want, we want all of their love. We don't want part of their heart. We want, we want the whole thing. We want a full relationship with them. Um, and we demand 100% of them or nothing. And I don't know why we come to our faith and we act like God would ex- expect or accept any less. Like, why would God be okay with half hearted devotion when we aren't okay with half hearted devotion? It just seems crazy to me that it took me so long to see that um, and to try to give God so much less. And so James goes on. So he had this really harsh language. Now he kind of softens it up a bit. He's going to get harsh again, but he softens it up, just kind of help round out the teaching here. Um, He says, but he, God, gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. So even though we can't live in both worlds, and it, you know, is pretty clear that God is really strict about this, um, God also knows that we're not going to be perfect. There's going to be times when we struggle to give him our undivided devotion. There's going to be times when we were foolishly sink back into our old way of living that old life and the old habits that go with it and in those moments when we fail he still is going to extend grace to us in fact it's the grace of God is so rich and so um, unlimited that I mean we're going to do this multiple times in our lives and he's going to keep extending grace to us and he provides us with the Holy Spirit to live inside of us to give us the strength to keep making forward progress you know and, and progress is that, that we more and more, day by day, give him that undivided devotion that he deserves. And even though we're not going to be perfect, our daily work is to try to run as far away from sin as we can get and to run as close to God as we can get. That's why um, he says, James says, that God gives grace to the humble. Um, The humble, we have to be humble if we're going to get close to God and leave our old life behind because it's humility that says my old way of living was wrong. My old way of looking at the world was flawed and evil and limited. And I need my heart renewed. I need my perspective renewed. I need to see the world the way God sees. I need to love the way God loves. And so that's what Our goal is, every single day, is to surrender ourselves to be remade into the image of Jesus so that we can live and love like him. And so the overall direction of our life needs to be moving away from sin and away from Satan's work and closer and closer to our Heavenly Father, as close as we can get. So how do we do that? How do we flee from sin and draw near to God? How do we do that? Well, we're going to see a couple more uh, harsh verses here as James gives us the answers. He says, Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Now, um, drawing near to God, or fleeing from sin and drawing near to God is... Done through confession and repentance. Um, I think some of us get the impression that repenting is that only you only do that when you become a Christian. Yeah, I did that before I got baptized and I said, Yeah, I'm all in with Jesus. So I, yeah, I repented, done. Or maybe um, that was something you felt like you did before your confirmation classes or something like that, depending on the church background you have. But But repenting is something that we are called to do any time we recognize that we have sin in our lives. And the action of repentance, it actually means to turn 180 degrees. So I see something sinful that I'm moving towards, something that's evil, something that's of the devil. And so I see that it's sinful. I repent. God, I'm sorry. This is not the direction I want to go. We turn all the way away from sin. And we move away from sin, away from the devil, and we move toward what is godly, what is good, what our Heavenly Father would have us do instead. And I think sometimes we don't take sin as seriously as we should. And the language that James uses here is meant to kind of shock us a little bit. It, it, he, he's implying that we should take this extremely seriously because sin is so nasty. It, one, it breaks the heart of God. It undermines the work that he's trying to do in the world. Often through us, um, sin leads us to hurt people, to take advantage of people, to use people, so that we can have just kind of the life that we want. And I think one of the most common ways that that we tend to straddle this line um, between the old life and the new is we allow certain sins to just exist and thrive in our lives, in our hearts. Um, and, and we just don't really do anything about them. We just act like they're no big deal. And, you know, we, one way that we might kind of convince ourselves that certain sins that we are guilty of aren't so bad is we'll compare them to bigger sins, you know, well, it's not like I murdered anybody, you know, it's not like I kicked a puppy or anything like that, you know, and we kind of compare what we've done to other bad things as if that makes what we've done less bad or makes it acceptable. And so it's easy for us to have smaller sins or what we consider smaller sins in our life that we just kind of let run free. And we'll say things like, well, it's just lust. You know, I'm only looking. I'm not touching. What's the big deal? Or it's just a few white lies. It gets me out of those awkward conversations with my boss and some other people at work and and they're never going to find out. So who cares? Or it's only gossip. You know, everyone gossips. That's pretty much the only way people interact at my workplace. So uh, it's it's not going to hurt them and people, and they're never going to find out. And it's really fun to actually kind of, you know, whisper and gossip about people, especially those people you don't like. And so we'll let certain sins thrive in our hearts. We won't worry about them. We won't feel bad about them. And, and we might even say, well, it's, you know, I'm a Christian, so Jesus is going to forgive me of that anyway, so I don't really need to really worry about them too much because I'll go to church on Sunday or I'll pray and God forgive me and, you know, whew, got them all taken care of. And... Letting sin thrive in our heart is not acceptable. Again, that's a half-in with Jesus mentality, not fighting the the sins that existed in your old life and letting them kind of bleed over into the new. That's not okay, and that's why James uses such strong language here to kind of shake us up out of our complacency. If you've been uh, with us through most of this series, what you've probably noticed—I've pointed it out several times—is that. Every time James addresses his audience, the people that he's writing to, he says, my brothers or my beloved. He uses these terms of affection, th- these terms of, of family and relationship. And and then all of a sudden in this passage, he like turns on a dime and he's like, you guys are adulterous. And how he says, uh, you guys are are sinners and you're double-minded. And he uses these like crazy different, you know, accusative terminology, um, because he's like, you guys are trying to be Christian and pagan at the same time, and that is not okay. And we need to see that. And then he says, you need to start weeping for the way that you've been living. You need to stop laughing and acting like everything's okay, and you need to mourn your sorry behavior and and this half-hearted, half-in attitude before God. You see, the thing is when you try to live with a foot in both worlds, you're trying to have the benefits of the new and the benefits of the old. You're trying to kind of be neutral. I want to have salvation, but I also want to have control of my life and do what's fun and and follow my dreams, my heart, whatever you want to, however you say it. But James is saying that's that's not how this works. This thing, this like no, this choice to not choose one or the other is a very obvious choice against God. You have chosen, whether you realize it or not, you've chosen the old life and rejected the new. Anytime you don't go fully in with the new, you have already chosen to fully reject the new. Unless you go all in, you are not in. That's how this works. And and you can probably see that because if you've tried this for a length of time, you said, I'm a Christian and, and that's how, you, but you've been living with this half in half out world, I would almost bet that you've experienced very little growth in your faith. You haven't attained any level of spiritual maturity. You, you probably haven't become more Christ-like as you've gone throughout your life. You probably haven't had your heart transformed to see the world like Jesus or to love people like Jesus. It just You can't do that and while you're still hanging on to the old life. And not only that, but it's incredibly insulting to God to, to act as if you've got him fooled, that your half-hearted devotion should be enough for him. That yeah, you went through some maybe some spiritual hoops. You came to church. You maybe got baptized or went through a confirmation class, or or maybe you, if you're Catholic, maybe it was you went to a confession, or or you know you whatever church background you have, we all have this kind of setup of spiritual activities that we go through. And maybe you think, I've done all the things, so I'm forgiven and God loves me. But, but James seems to, seems to be implying, no, God is not fooled by that. God's not fooled by this adulterous, sinful, double-minded attitude. And so if you're going to follow Jesus, he requires your full allegiance, your complete devotion. He wants an all-in relationship with you he is not going to be satisfied with part of you he wants all of you and that is why james says early on that he yearns jealously for you that god doesn't want to share you with anyone he wants all of your devotion and he loves you enough to want more for you than this broken old life that you often and i often tend to choose for ourselves and, you know, one of the reasons I think we hold on to the old life so much is because we, we're afraid that if we jump all in, we're going to look back and, and realize we've lost something important or, or that we're missing something. Um, and even though you do have to say goodbye to certain things when you become a Christian, I can tell you, going all in with Jesus is nothing but gain. It's nothing but gain. So if you've been living with a foot in both lives, it's gotta stop. That's not acceptable. Jesus is not okay. Our heavenly your heavenly father is not okay with half-hearted devotion. It doesn't honor him. It doesn't help you. The only thing, the only thing accomplished when you stand on both sides is it might make you feel better. And it might blind you to the fact that you are haven't gone all in with Jesus. It might make you think that you're saved when you're actually not. It might make you feel like you've got your heavenly redemption sealed up when you have actually still chosen a position of of being an enemy of God. It doesn't work. Foot on both sides doesn't work. Jesus wants an all-in relationship with you. The only thing this foot in both worlds, both lives thing is going to get you is death.